Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Jonathan Solorson O'Hamilton, software architect and technical collaboration leader at UCLA. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you on. I'll give the, our listeners a bit of context. Last week, we had a show with Dr. Paul White. We talked about toxic workplace, toxic workers, toxic leaders, narcissists, etc. And after that show, somebody sent me an awesome blog that you wrote on on free code camp, which it's also Quincy Larson, who's a previous guest. So there was a nice little link together for everything. And with the innovation show the way it is, I thought people like this, toxic workers, can actually stop innovation within companies or block others. And Paul in the show talked about this idea of a black walnut tree. And the idea of the black walnut tree, it grows really nice, really tall, big tree. It has toxic roots, it emits a toxin, and nothing can grow around it. And he used that as an analogy for people in companies who actually have a great role, real leadership role, that it should be leadership in the authentic idea of what leadership is, but they actually keep everybody else at bay and they stop everybody else growing. And your blog, which I'm going to let you take over from now, tells a perfect story of this type of worker. And I'd love if you'd share it with our audience, Jonathan. Thanks again for having me on. And I actually very much recognized that uh, sort of black walnut tree metaphor when I was listening to your show uh, myself uh, in the same story. So I'm glad that a listener brought it uh, to your attention and gave me an opportunity to talk about it here. So for those of you that haven't read the article, I'll kind of provide a very brief summary. Uh, you can find it online on the free Code Camp blog at Medium. Uh, and it's called, uh, We Fired Our Top Talent, Best Decision We Ever Made. And it's really the story of an organization that I worked at, and we came in to a situation where the team had been in development hell for some time. And for those of you that have been there, that's, you know, it's a pretty terrible situation to be in. And it was really puzzling because in this particular team, they had uh, as the technical lead, this person that had been widely perceived throughout the company for some time as the sort of genius guru of, you know, all of our technical team, you know, he was, he was really the go to person for everything and always had the right answer. And he was really, you know, uh, talented and, and worked really hard. And so it was really puzzling that this product that, you know, he was the lead on was really struggling and, and was, in fact, on the brink of failure. And so I was brought into this project pretty late in the game, as kind of a last ditch attempt to uh, see what was going on and see if we could salvage it prior to just killing the project altogether. And in, uh, in, in uh, the States, uh, we have a, a phrase called a Hail Mary pass, which is in American football, when uh, you, you're, about, you're about to lose the game and you could just throw the ball and hope for the best and maybe you'll score and win. This is kind of what that was, was, you know, we're, we're you know, minutes left on the clock and nothing <laughs> left to do, but, but just go for the, go for broke. So I started to peel back the layers and realized that with this talent leading the tech side, in fact, that was the source of the problem. Rather than him sort of contributing and creating the solution that we needed, he was 
actually kind of killing the product as, faster than it was being built through some really negative uh, work habits. And uh, as uh, sort of the lead into my blog post indicates, this actually culminates in a fairly uh, fiery departure where he swore profusely at everybody in the room and stormed out. And, you know, unfortunately, we had to sever our employment relationship with him ultimately because uh, it had become so toxic. But it was a it was definitely a spiral down to that point. Uh, prior to that meeting, months prior, my first meeting with him and the team, uh, he individually insulted every single member of the team. This is my first meeting with him. I'm just sitting there, you know, I've just become his supervisor. So he has a brand new boss and I don't say anything. And I'm just sitting on the corner and he, you know, calls one person an idiot to their face. And he tells another person that they're physically incapable of ever understanding anything that he says and so on, just on and on for an hour. And it was immediately obvious that this was, you know, contributing to significant problems on the project. Yeah, and, and when he was doing that belittling, like, because we talked about uh, to Dr. Paul White about this last week, is it's often done in a masked way, but this wasn't done in that way at all. So you had a, you had a narcissist on your hands. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I think there, there was both. I think that we had a narcissist, but we also had a bully, you know, and he was somebody that would punch down uh, overtly. And would covertly sort of, uh, you know, manipulate upwards. So he was also insulting at the, you know, at the outset to his uh, customers and to his, you know, to, to the other managers and, and more senior people. But he did that in a much more subtle way. But he definitely had gotten to the point already where he felt comfortable, you know, openly mocking and denigrating the contributions of people that were junior to him in the organization. And so that was, you know, definitely a, a very active kind of bullying type of behavior that was pretty consistent and that, you know, we weren't able to really coach out of him. But what I found really interesting was he didn't seem to, you know, you were at that meeting and he didn't manage upwards because oftentimes a bully like this in the workplace manages well upwards like so they mask it and they put on an angel and then the, the, the devil behind the curtain type thing yeah and i think that he had done that i mean to the extent that i had visibility into what was going on you know i'd been with the organization just not on that team or in that side of things for a while prior and i think that he had been doing that for some time you know behind more of a mask and you know and and been more effective at, at it earlier. But I think that what had happened by this point is that, uh, you know, you can only keep up a, a facade for so long. And he really um, was no longer able to, to kind of contain himself and, and, you know, and kind of hide that type of behavior and, in a one on one context or whatnot. And it was now kind of more openly on display. It could also have been that, you know, perhaps with his prior manager, uh, he felt, um, you know, perhaps with me coming on board as a new manager, rather, he, um, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of respect for me going into it. And so maybe he, he felt like he didn't need to uh, wear that mask around me. I don't, I don't know exactly. Uh, we were never really able to get to the bottom of it there. But uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty toxic situation. And unfortunately, it really had come from a place where, uh, again, he had been that successful person and he had been a, a strong contributor. And I think that there were a couple of factors that converged. Uh, that really led to this outcome. And I think some of it was baked into his personality, but some of it was also um, how the company failed to grow adequately as uh, as the demands on, uh, on our tech teams grew. Uh, and when you mentioned managing up, you know, one of the contexts that I hear about that more often is kind of in the context of recognizing where management is weak 
where your management is weak or needs help and being proactive about introducing those kinds of changes. And that's definitely something that I think he failed to do, you know, and that his management failed to recognize, you know, when things got tough, they had fallen into a pattern of just handing hard problems to him and not having him work alongside or with or show other people or anything. And so a tremendous amount of the product domain knowledge was sort of, you know, locked in his head because he was the only one that ever got the tough problems. Uh, And that just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so ultimately he became the bottleneck for everything. Before we we discuss it further and and maybe talk about some of the signals that this was coming, it'd be great to tell our audience about the culmination, the grand finale. It's like revealing the end of the movie. Would you tell tell us about the actual uh, outburst at the end? Oh yeah, so that was uh, uh, that was very um, very shocking to me. I, I I don't think I'd ever experienced something like that before or since in my in my professional in my professional life. But uh, we were in a, a meeting with the senior stakeholders uh, of the project um, present, and it was sort of a you know, do or die meeting. This was a, a few months into my having kind of stepped into my role. And um, we were trying to f- figure out the the what the realistic deadline was. So we had decide, decided to keep the project on life support for now when, when we could finish it and uh, when his work was going to be complete. And we had identified that uh, you know, with him as a bottleneck, we really would need to bring other people up to speed and we would need to uh, have other people able to contribute to those parts of the project that only he had worked on to this point. And so he stood up he literally stood up at the table uh, and we have, you know, our senior customer stakeholders and internal customers, but senior, you know, customer stake, you know, stakeholders and uh, the product design team and management and the CIO and the CTO and all these people. And he shouts that we will never be able to understand any of what he had created and that he, you know, was Albert Einstein and we were all just monkeys scrabbling in the dirt next to him. It was, a, it was, <laughs> and, and a few expletives thrown in around there. I don't, I don't have one of those buttons that goes beep, but, uh, we, we, yeah. we, we get the message. Yeah, definitely. And if you if you want the the, the slightly less censored version, you can read the blog post. Um, <laughs> and you but, know, uh, you know, Jonathan, I was thinking when I read it that it reminds me so much of of sport. And you mentioned the hail mary pass. We call it that. I think most sports use a hail mary pass for the same thing. But the thing that really dawned on me was it's exactly like a prima donna in any sports team. So oftentimes, a sports team will have a, a genius player, but it comes at a cost because the genius player may not train as hard as everyone else, doesn't follow the rules the same as everyone else. And the effect, the negative effect it has on a team is hugely detrimental. And what you end up having is that future great players who actually may not, may be more than talented players. They may be actual leaders in your team. And if you can grow and cultivate leaders in your team, you have a such a better team in the end. And this type of black walnut character kills that. I mean, I think you can see it in sport when think about the 2014 World Cup. You know, I, I assume you know most people watched that game. I know I did. And one of the things that really stuck out to me about that game is that Messi is standing there, you know, waiting for the ball 80% of the game. And everybody's just trying to get Messi the ball, trying to get Messi the ball, trying to get Messi the ball. And, you know, Argentina loses because 
their whole team was structured around just trying to get this one person the ball so he can score and save them. And that's not how team sports work. And that's just not a viable model in sport or, and certainly not in life, you know, and I think that, you know, we, we run into those kinds of people that are used to being the star and they're used to being, you know, uh, the, you know, the kind of person that can swoop in and save everything. And, uh, we kind of grow dependent on them. And I, I don't think that that reflects poorly on Messi. I mean, I think he was certainly the best Argentinian player, but I think uh, we tend to run into that. We kind of create that problem for ourselves where we know we have other people that we can depend on to really come through when it gets hard. And so we become dependent and we kind of hand it off to them. And it becomes a sort of self-feeding beast where, you know, the prima donna gets, you know, kind of thrives on that kind of treatment. And then they start to expect it. And then everybody else kind of becomes dependent on it. And, you know, it's just not a sustainable pattern in the long term. Yeah, and I get that. I mean, so many great coaches and NFL coaches, rugby coaches, whatever it is, talk about having the consistent performer over the once every three or four games type player because you know you might get 110 percent out of one player every fourth game but you might get 99 percent or 100 percent out of the other guys consistently and which do you go for but also it's that idea and you talk about this in the blog once the dust settled and everybody got rid of that sick feeling in their stomach that happened after the albert einstein moment was that the team regathered and they fixed it let's not just paint the story of the problem let's look at what happened what was the aftermath yeah so there were there were many separate aftermaths um you know and and it was a, it was a very protracted uh situation in reality and i kind of condensed it down to a much pithier story so that it would be easy to to read and follow uh various uh, pieces of this actually prior to our you know, Einstein, uh, you know, Einstein's departure, we had actually parted ways with several of the managers that helped to kind of create that situation in the first place, because they didn't recognize what was happening and prevent it. And they kind of fed into that culture, you know, uh, much as you would, you know, fire a football manager that was, you know, doing the same thing. And, um, you know, and, and I was you know, trying to kind of get a handle on things as well. And, and then we, you know, we lose him. And we're still left with the same deadlines. And we're still left with the stark fact that if we don't get a product shipped, that the, you know, the whole product team is going to be, you know, the, the product is going to be canceled and the team is going to be out of work, you know, and I wasn't particularly keen to start updating my CV at that point in time. And I don't think anybody else was either. And so we all came together and said, okay, well, we know there's a lot of mistakes that have been made and we've been stuck in this really unhealthy, you know, pattern and kind of spiral for some time, but what can we do to recover and what can we do to ship and build a viable product and to ultimately succeed? And uh, so we, you know, really stripped things down to the bare minimum of what what success could really look like, what we absolutely needed to have in order for it to 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 be a functional and valuable product, and just focused on that and built one piece at a time together. You know, the whole team huddled around the whiteboard and they participated collaboratively in divvying up the work and they worked on the architecture together. And it wasn't just one person sort of calling the shots and hoarding all the hard stuff you know, anymore. It really, um, it really grew, um, you know, organically into a much more healthy team because it had to, if we hadn't done that, then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been able to succeed. Ultimately within a few months, we had 
replaced the vast majority of the functionality that that this lone wolf, if you will, had sort of implemented on its own that nobody was able to uh, kind of salvage. And uh, we just rebuilt it together in, in a much, much quicker time. And it was much more robust and reliable. And uh, we were able to ship a product and, and ultimately, you know, save the team, even even though we couldn't save every every member, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing I, I thought was when I read it, it was like, I know you came in late in the project, but it went against all the current wisdom. So the idea of using perhaps design thinking to come up with new ways of thinking about the code to brainstorm, et cetera. Then on top of that, agile techniques and lean startup kind of mentality. None of that was present here. This this was all a case of kind of outsourcing it to one brilliant coder. But the problem with that is nobody else could decipher the code or add to it. or It went against all the current wisdom. That's true. I think that in defense of the the prior management team, I'll say that this did happen some time ago. And so it was really a lot, Agile was a lot more nascent and wasn't proven yet at this time. And uh, this was, you know, really back in the day when Waterfall was the best in class was when this project was was started, although, you know, Agile was certainly starting to come into its own. Uh, But I think that regardless of what methodology you're using. I mean, if you're using Agile, if you're using Waterfall, or, you know, if you are, you know, throwing darts at a, you know, map on the wall of the code you need to build to figure out what to do next, what you do need to be able to do is to see if what you're doing isn't working. And it doesn't matter if it's best practice for industry. If you're, if what you're doing is destroying your product and it's going to lead you to fail, you need to change course. And I think that that was the big failure. Um, certainly now as an industry, we've matured more. Uh, and you know, these other methodologies did exist. They just weren't as popular. And so I, you know, that, you know, it's not like we independently invented, you know, uh, you know, agile and, and, you know, minimum viable product and so on, you know, anticipating it. I mean, these were things that existed in the world and it's just that the, the previous management hadn't seen that what they were doing was never going to work. And this, you know, previous contributor, um, also, you know, didn't manage up. And there were also, even within that framework, a lot of mistakes made getting them more to the technical side, you know, and I, this comes up in some of my other posts, uh, they were building a lot of stuff that already existed that they could have used for free. I mean, they were building a, you know, object relational mapper framework to persist stuff into the database by hand, you know, and it's, you can get those off the shelf these days in any language you want and, and could have them too. And they just didn't have that judgment to say, no, you know, this isn't going to be a differentiator for our product. We don't need to build this by hand. You know, we can we can go with the 80% solution to get something launched. And that was the, uh, you know, another another kind of missing missing piece here. Yeah, because like if you think about the, the infrastructure, the ecosystem now of code, I mean, there's barely anything that hasn't been coded. It's actually more about the UX or, or the front end or actually the business model in the end when you just there's jigsaw pieces that exist everywhere and you just put as much as you can together and then code the pieces that are missing. Yeah, and you know this comes up in some of my other stuff, but I think a great model for people to use for that is um, is Tesla because yeah, you you know a lot of it is putting together the pieces that are missing and then just adding one bit of innovation, like one novel thing that sets you apart from the rest is enough to, you know, kind of get your product into that hockey stick, you know, growth model where everybody will flock to it because that's the thing that they care about. And, you know, uh, Tesla is a company that did this very well. You know, they're a battery company. They're not really a car company. Uh, they started out and they bought 
electric cars that were already fully assembled from some guy in Santa Monica, I think. And they had a new kind of battery that, you know, made the car much lighter and therefore much faster and much longer range, you know. And so they just took his batteries out, put their batteries in, and it worked great. And they said, excellent. You know, this is a good prototype. And so then they went to Lotus, which has been making excellent sports cars uh, with, um, you know, a lot of experience in that for, for decades. And they took the a Lotus Roadster, the Elise, and they just put an electric powertrain from their car. So it's the same powertrain that this guy built. Um, plus their battery into now a production roadster that already exists in the world. And then they sold that. And that was the first product they went to customers with, you know, was, was basically a Lotus Elise with a, a pre-built electric powertrain and their battery, you know, and that was very successful. And that enabled them to get to the point where now they're differentiating by building, you know, better doors on their SUVs and all kinds of stuff. Now they've gotten to the point where they have enough, of a loyal customer base under their belt and they have enough of a good product line under their belt and enough resources where they can afford to go do all this other little, you know, nifty customization to add value in all these other places. But at first they were really just focused on, we have a great battery. Let's figure out a way to sell these great batteries to as many people as we can. And I think that it's important when people are innovating not to lose sight of what, you know, what is your new battery or what is your new idea and how can you, frame that into a product that people are going to use while doing as little stuff outside of that really core value add as possible. And that's to me is, is the key to really successful, you know, innovation and disruption is really just being very tightly focused on what unique piece you have to offer. Yeah. And, and, and use what's existing parts of there. It always reminds me of the kind of Frankenstein, like, so I'll hack together all these body parts uh, and my innovation might be to bring them to life. And, you know, I, I got that from, from, your blogs is that this all this stuff exists but let, let's park that for the moment because i'd love you to give your advice to other tech companies what were the signals that a management team should look for that this is happening that this is going awry i have seen it happen other times and we've had more successful results sometimes than we had with this particular employee jumping back into the into the article and there are a lot of warning signs to look out for. You know, I, th I think the biggest warning sign is when you have a senior engineer or a senior person that is not allowing other people to take on hard work. And it can be very direct. In this case, this individual did have some supervisory authority. And so he was able to just divert tasks from his subordinates that he just wanted to take and didn't want them to take. But also, it can be a little more subversive than that, where you may have somebody that doesn't have a supervisory role, but they always jump in and grab, you know, certain tasks and nobody else gets a chance to work on those. And they're cherry picking the hardest stuff or the most interesting stuff or stuff in a particular domain so that they can kind of retain ownership of, of that domain. So that that's a big that's a big red flag is if is if there's a person that's kind of hoarding challenging work to themselves. And it's unhealthy for a lot of reasons, but it, it can be a sign that that something bad is brewing as well. I think another one that we could have spotted sooner is the uh, you know the other staff were starting to just give up on on stuff i mean they were they were really so not only was he taking things but they were just uh you know they had gotten to the point where they were so used to him taking stuff that they would just not take it. They, they would not pick something up that was sitting there waiting to be done because they knew that he would swoop in and grab it. And so that's, you know, I guess if, if that, if somebody jumping in and taking the good stuff for themselves is maybe, 
maybe a, a, a big warning flag. This is like a blinking, you know, danger light when uh, when when other people now have sh- shifted their behavior to accommodate, you know, this this kind of toxic person. Uh, another sign is if people in meetings have a lot more to say when this person isn't around. That's something that was true here is that, you know, people didn't feel comfortable speaking up because, you know, he was always denigrating first their ideas and then later themselves directly. People didn't really want to want to speak up and contribute. And another, you know, really big problem is if you have somebody that doesn't want other people to see or review or get their hands on their work. You know, if somebody is, is is really kind of secretive about the work that they're doing and, you know, sure, they're producing it and they're handing it off, but they really just don't want to get other eyes on it. They don't want to document it. They don't want other people to provide feedback on it. You know, that that's a that's that's a sign that trouble is afoot. And so, you know, we ha- lacked processes that would protect against this kind of thing. We didn't have a formal code review process. We didn't have any kind of pair coding. We didn't have management structures in place that made sure that the work was being distributed equitably and that people were getting stretch tasks, you know, that maybe were just a little bit harder than the stuff they were normally tasked with, but gave them an opportunity to grow. We didn't have those things. And so when we you've got a toxic person in just the wrong place at just the wrong time that was able to really kind of derail everything to their own benefit, it really spiraled out of control. So I think those are the the, the top ones. And, you know, I published a, a follow-up article where I kind of described some of the broader organizational changes that we introduced after after this as well which which is on medium if you want to if you want to read it well I'd, I'd love at the end of the of the show if you gave all the, the links etc be great and i'll put them up on the website etc but another question for you so going back to the black walnut analogy right so the black walnut tree releases the toxins that nothing no other vegetation can grow around it and you alluded to this there that if they're hoarding all the tough tasks or indeed most of the tasks and then not sharing the work, they're actually depriving the rest of the team of the opportunity to learn. Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, they're depriving the rest of the, you know, the rest of the team, the opportunity to learn and also creating a sort of HR nightmare as well and, and building their own prison. Because, you know, I think that sometimes, you know, we get tempted to think of, oh, you know, if, if I only know this, you know, if, I, if I'm the person that has the key to this, to this problem, or I'm the only person that has this knowledge, that's job security. But it really is a lock that goes both ways, because rapidly what happened is this person accumulated more and more of the code base and more and more of the domain knowledge, you know, and was the only person that could answer these questions or solve these bugs. You know, he, he stopped being able to take time off. He's, you know, he had to be there because no one else could go in. And I mean, coupled with the fact that if anybody, you know, touched any of his code, he would lose his mind. You know, so nobody even felt comfortable doing it. But you know, it went beyond job security and and became, you know, what you can't even take a day off. You can't take a vacation or a sick day or whatnot because literally every day that you're out of the office, the deadline has to slip by one day because there's no one else that can do it. It not only becomes the case that, like the black walnut, they are kind of leaching toxins and keeping everyone else from growing but they also have assumed because nothing else grows the responsibility for producing all of the food so they can never stop and they have to be you know on it 100 percent of the time and if their production slows down or if they you know get sick or whatnot then you know there's an immediate and negative effect on everybody because everybody has that dependency and, and nothing has been allowed else has been allowed to to flourish 
so yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a, <laughs> a major anti-pattern yeah. um, that uh, I think only the short-sighted would willingly take on. And, and oftentimes at that stage, they become angry against the company and they're going to go, oh, I can't take time off. Nobody will leave me alone when I'm off. You, you sent me an email when I was on holidays and you're going, well, you created that. And But when you point the finger like that as a leader, there's three pointing back at yourself because it was allowed to happen. That's the reality. And I suppose that's one of the main things I wanted to pull out here in the show was that I'd love other people to learn the lesson that you paint so well and also spot the signals early instill the patterns early the stuff you talked about the pair coding etc the mapping of you know the an agile process etc but another thing was most people don't go to work just for the paycheck and in code i find that particularly the case and i think that's particularly why you see a lot of people coding for good causes etc you know when you see what quincy's doing with free code camp etc there's a lot of goodwill in the coding world and so many people will get disheartened going to work every day if you have a, a rick in the team I, I i call them rick einstein by the way so you have a rick in, <laughs> you have a rick einstein in the team and all of a sudden everybody else gets disheartened and, and you end up having good people leave yeah we had definitely bled some talent before this and i think that was one of the when when our when one of our other really talented staff who had worked with this person left you know i think that was a big wake-up call i think that was one of the things that just, you know that combined with the slipping deadlines and whatnot uh was one of the things that caused senior management to really change gears and put a lot of focus on this and, and kind of shake up the management structure of it and uh, you're right people don't just go to work for their paycheck and in fact there's been some research that shows that increasing someone's salary uh, beyond a certain point relative to the cost of living wherever they are doesn't really increase their motivation at all. You know, there's a there's a curve where you pay someone more, you pay someone more, they work harder, they work better, they do more for you. But at a certain point, what people really start to crave is autonomy and the ability to solve interesting problems and the ability, you know, and, and the ability to work with other people that respect them and help them grow and challenge them. And those other factors really you know, will help uh, to create a culture that people really look forward to coming to work in the morning. You know, a paycheck is necessary to get someone to work, but it's not sufficient. You know, it's these other forms of sort of intellectual and moral nourishment that help people to really thrive. And yeah, when you have your your black walnut contributor that's releasing toxins into the soil and all that's left for people to to survive on is that paycheck, you definitely don't get your good performance out of the other out of the other staff. One of the other lessons that we took away from this too is one that i think a lot of organizations that i've worked for have suffered from is the idea that good performance apologizes for bad behavior and i think we're seeing this more broadly in a fairly uh you know socially um, explosive way right now with with very specific types of bad behavior but i do see it you know going beyond just explicitly you know harassment and into just sort of being a jerk and being a poor colleague in a, in a lot of other ways where i think there's a lot of people particularly in tech uh, that believe that well if at the end of the day they contribute a lot then you know it doesn't matter if they're a jerk they're just telling it like it is or they're just you know, that's just how they are and other people have to deal with it. And to me, it's almost the opposite because when someone's doing that, you really don't have any way to know how much they're hurting the rest of the team, but you do know they are. And I'd rather have 
eight people that are really happy and love their jobs and are helping each other get the best out of each other every day, you know, than one person that's 10 times as good as the rest of them, uh, but that is just poisoning everyone else's love for the job. Because ultimately, in the long run, that one person is not scalable and isn't sustainable. And even if you have to take an immediate 20% productivity hit to get everybody else on board, I think it's worth it uh, because you can't clone that one great person. And if you could, he probably wouldn't get along with his clone anyway. So, <laughs> you know, so you have to build processes and teams that can scale and they can deliver good performance in the long run. And and that only comes on a foundation of respect and, and collaboration. Brilliant. And, and I, I just want to call out as well, like uh, Rick Einstein can be, a sales guy, Rick Einstein can be a media personality within a big organization. They can be so many people, a CMO that just causes a toxic workplace. So this isn't just about what happened with you with, with Einstein, but it goes beyond so many companies. I wanted people to recognize this and have the bravery to let it go. Because just like Paul White said last week, and you heard the show, he said, yes, there's immediate pain, but in the long run, the company succeeds. Oh, definitely. And I think that one other critical aspect of it is making sure that it isn't immediate pain. I mean, you do want to rip that Band-Aid off. In general, I've gotten feedback where about 90% of the responses seem to be like, yeah, this this is a, a terrible situation to be in. And then about 10% of the people out there are like, why didn't you do more to help this guy? And I obviously can't go into particular details about you know uh, an HR situation and what exactly it was like and what we did and didn't do to try to help this person. I don't, certainly don't want to risk compromising their identity uh, also. But uh, one thing I will say to anybody that kind of has that reaction is, at what point do you think it's appropriate for your workplace to be somebody else's after school special. This is a workplace that everyone else has to go to every day to pay, you know, to get their paycheck and feed their families. And how much toxicity and horrible behavior do you think that should be tolerated in those kinds of spaces so that one person can, you know, be coached and guided and learn how to be a decent human being, you know, and a decent colleague. So I, I think that if I, I would tell anybody who kind of reads this article and immediately and viscerally sides with the ricks of the world, I would say, well, I respect that. And I understand that it, it's a terrible thing to have to let someone go. And it's, you know, certainly a, a bad day for them. But you are putting an end to a bad every day for everybody else. And uh, end with making sure that people, you know, feel the, the courage to do what needs to be done and do the hard thing with the one person rather than kind of let everyone else suffer death by a thousand cuts uh, while you're being indecisive or, or while you're trying to, to gradually work them out of it. It's, you know, you do, you do have to make that kind of uh, immediate suffering to get that long-term benefit from everybody else. Well said, man. Well said. And and where can people find out more about you, Jonathan, and, and your projects and the blog, etc.? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter uh, at uh, J-H-S-O-L-O-R. I'm on Medium at Peach Pie because it's easier to spell than my name. <laughs> so you can find this uh, You can find this on, on Medium at Peach Pie. I contribute to the Free Code Camp uh, publication. So thanks, uh, Quincy Larson, for uh, your guidance and help getting uh, my articles out there. And uh, for those of you that are interested in maybe writing about your own experiences, I highly recommend Quincy's posts and, and podcasts and YouTube uh, videos on how to write technical content and how, and how to write things that people will want to read. He has some really good advice on that. That's one of the places where you can find me. And uh, if you have any questions, you can, you know, as a follow-up, you can always DM me on Twitter, uh, again, at J-H-S-O-L-O-R. I'm happy to answer those questions. Brilliant. Well, I'd love to do an intro and just say, Peach Pie, thanks for joining us. But I'm going <laughs> to give a go. <laughs> Jonathan Salorzano Hamilton, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, of course. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, man. 